Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with Marc Ajala, an author and psychologist practicing in Barcelona, whose work sits at the intersection of psychotherapy, altered states, and the facilitation of psychedelic integration. Having originally worked as a telecommunications engineer, Mark went on to become a licensed health psychologist, psychotherapist, and holotropic breathwork facilitator, and he served as a team leader and trainer in emergency psychological assistance at Boom Festival through the Cosmic Air Harm Reduction Programme. Since 2013, he has coordinated support services at the International Centre for Ethnobotanical Education, Research and Service, also known as ICES, and he worked on the first ever medical trial on the use of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, a study chronicled in the very interesting 2018 documentary Magic Medicine, which I recently watched on Netflix. During his time at ICES, he provided integration psychotherapy sessions for people going through challenging situations after experiencing transformative, non-ordinary states of consciousness. This work led him to develop theoretical models of intervention, which I am excited to say he has shared in the publication of his new book, Psychedelic Integration, Psychotherapy for Non-Ordinary States of Consciousness. Tracing the evolution of psychedelic-assisted therapy and integration research from the 1960s to the present, this book offers different models of integration and practical therapeutic techniques, and it documents Mark's real-world observations on the deep work of healing and self-discovery. Mark, I'm delighted to have you on the show today. How are you? Thank you so much for the invitation, Natalie. It's uh, great to finally have found the time to, to do this. Well, I devoured your book, Psychedelic Integration, Psychotherapy for Non-Ordinary States of Consciousness. I had thought, given the, the conversation we'd have, that it would be a lot more dense because obviously it's for practitioners. So if you're someone who has an expertise in this, you'd expect it to be detailed. And it is detailed. But it's also eminently readable. I literally read it from cover to cover. So um, I'm very excited to ask you about that. But I want to start with the question that I ask all my guests, which is, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Wow, <laughs> that's quite a question to start with. Uh, yeah, I love it. Um, I don't really know. I don't know if I have an answer for that. I think it's uh, somehow challenging times for a lot of people, no? And uh, as a race, I think that do, we do have a challenge in in terms of we're realizing that what we do is affecting each other and has affected each other without us realizing, you know? And now we see the the influence of the uh, climate change, for example, and that becomes a threat for everybody. Um, either you're part of, of that uh, 
problem or not. No, some shepherds in some the Kalahari Desert or whatever they had nothing to do with the global warming, but uh, we are all suffering the consequences. No, so I think that that's uh, one of the the challenges that we have now that we are seeing how everything affects each other, uh, even if you have not done anything in that regard. No, so mm-hmm. I, I think that that's one of the one of the things that that we immersed in um, again with this uncertainty in terms of. Uh, the the economy, no. We lived in a world at least uh, up until a few decades ago, in which it seemed that if you worked and you did the things that you were supposed to be doing, uh, you would get certain results. No, there was the sensation yeah. of being able to predict what was going to happen, and I think that that's not what's happening now. We cannot really predict what will happen next, and that creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uh, anxiety. You know, so I would say that everybody is trying to find. Uh, meaning a reason to continue doing the things that we do or change things and do them in a different way. I don't really know where we're going as a species and what's happening in the in the psyche, but I think that definitely we're, we we notice, we realize that we need a change. We need to do something different because the system that we were using is not is not working. No? So how to do that is probably a, a challenge of the next years. Let's see what will happen. Yeah. So let's start with one of the themes that I'm really interested in focusing on in this particular series and also that's central to your book, which is that of integration. I'm curious, what does integration mean to you given your work as a psychotherapist and as someone who specialises in working with people in altered states and in these kind of transformational contexts? Hmm. Yeah, the issue of what integration is is something that um, it's a hot topic, no? especially regarding the, the psychedelic therapy field. Uh, in which we seem to agree or we seem to understand each other when we say integration. Yeah, you talk about integration in uh, regards of psychedelics and everybody would say, yeah, 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 I know what integration is. But then if you ask further, then we see that it's not so easy to to define <laughs> integration or to find a common ground of what integration is. Yeah? That's why I like to answer this question in two ways. No? One way is, has to do with a time frame. No? So integration could be defined as what happened when the experience finishes, no? when the psychedelic experience finishes and then onwards. That's the integration phase. So integration would be a period of time, an undefined period of time, in which things might happen after a psychedelic experience. That is not saying much, but that places integration in in a in a special place in time, no? Which it's a, it's a way to start defining it. But then, what integration really is, I have. Uh, willingly not wanted to give a specific definition. And uh, you saw in the book that I define integration through different metaphors. No, I present different metaphors that maybe they they depict, they show different aspects of integration. Uh, when defining integration, sometimes we get to very cognitive sorts of definitions and explanations, but not everything is cognitive and rational. Yeah? So I wanted yeah. to give a more uh, metaphorical and more holographic kind of approach to the definition of integration. On top of those metaphors, I also defined different dimensions of integration. So I'm not saying what integration exactly is, but I'm saying what what dimensions are implied in, in integration. I talk about the rational dimension, the emotional, the uh, physical, but also the spiritual, the behavioral, the social, and the time dimensions. So I think that by thinking about integration in those different dimensions, we can get a wider definition or a wider understanding 
of what integration is. No? Mm. I tried not to give a definition that would somehow reduce the meaning of what integration is, but to phrase things in a way that it could actually amplify what we can understand as integration. No? So instead of reducing the meaning of integration, what I tried to do is expand it. So then usually I don't define integration <laughs> in, in sentences. <laughs> That's going to be great for future future researchers to refer back to. They'll be like, as cited in Mark Ajala's book, integration is, and then there'll be a whole chapter on the various definitions. <laughs> but it's interesting that kind of, you know, taking a, a wider view. And one of the things I really love, those seven levels that you described of which spiritual integration is one, is something that a lot of us are allergic to, this idea of spirituality or um, having a kind of somehow a transcendent quality to everyday life, let alone kind of these extraordinary experiences that we can encounter in very particular instances. So the spiritual aspect, I could imagine from maybe an academic perspective, strikes me as being perhaps the most contentious aspect of integration that people might not want to touch because it's quite difficult. It's got a lot of um, maybe stigma, I think in some countries is probably the right word for that. So when we're thinking about that aspect and bringing that in, especially if we're talking about psychedelic experiences, which do occasion transcendental or mystical states, how do you begin to talk about spiritual integration in what's quite a dry context? Like, how do you start to have that discussion? Well, that's a very good question. And definitely something, like you say, happens, you know, that uh, spirituality can be a... Uh, difficult topic to talk about in certain circles, but it also happens the opposite, you know, that spirituality is sometimes the only dimension that psychedelics are approached from. You know? So in uh, a lot of shamanic uh, or neo-shamanic rituals or certain underground groups that use psychedelics, they mostly focus on uh, the spiritual dimension. Mm. You know? So there can be a bias both by excess and by um, uh, negation no, of, of that of that dimension. So, so yeah, spirituality is a topic that's difficult to approach. Um, and from the scientific perspective or the clinical Western perspective, I think that uh, it is necessary to include the transcendental or spiritual domain of integration because the psychedelic experience many times has a quality that transcends uh, words and the rational understanding. You know? So when people try to express what they have gone through, they need to refer to certain ways of speaking that are not so much a rational uh, Western kind of mindset, but they go into these uh, domains in which we lack words to explain what has happened. You know? And sometimes what we do when we lack words to explain what we have gone through, we use certain metaphors that point towards those spiritual domains. No? So then if we try to deny that dimension and we try to, to eliminate that sort of language, we are somehow closing the doors to certain types of experiences that people have. Mm. That doesn't mean, and that's up to everybody and, and uh, our own beliefs, that what we live under those experiences is a reality. No? If people see an angel during a psychedelic experience, that doesn't really mean at all that angels are real or are not real. You know, that's something that's up to the person to decide. No? But if we try to limit the expression of that or we don't include the, that sort of, uh, of, of dimension of the experiences, um, then we're missing something. You know, so uh, I think that actually the, the scientific community has been relatively open to the spiritual domain of psychedelics. There's been some research done by uh, Roland Griffiths at the Johns Hopkins University that they looked into mystical experiences. Yeah, and, and that's actually 
something that happened already in the 70s when Walter Punky did the the uh, Good Friday experiment. No, that was very much focused on spirituality. So there's a precedent on the research regarding spiritual experiences and psychedelics, which seems to be still something in, in place. No, mm. also there seems to be a, a correlation between the occurrence of a mystical experience that's defined in certain scientific criteria and the better outcomes of psychedelic therapy. So mm. it seems that the closer we are of uh, this sort of spiritual transcendental experience, then the the more positive impact a psychedelic experience can have in the course of a therapeutic treatment. You know, So, yeah, we cannot really uh, uh, deny that dimension. And so what was the core motivation to write the book? Because you have a very interesting background. Maybe you can touch on that a little bit. But why do we need a more integrative approach? What was it about the moment now that lent itself to this project? Hmm. So the project started some years ago. And what happened is that since 2012, I've been uh, working with this uh, organization, the uh, ICERS, it's called International Center for Ethnobotanical Education Research and Service. And my task there has been to support those members of the global psychedelic community that had encountered challenging experiences, in uh, challenging psychedelic experiences. No? So we would receive emails from people uh, reporting what had happened in the experiences and the challenges that they were experiencing afterwards, be it anxiety or depression or intrusive thoughts or whatever. No? So then in a natural way, I found myself supporting these people and trying to develop practices that would support people in, in these states. Then I started giving lectures explaining what, what I was doing and what I was encountering. Over the last 10 years, I've worked with more than a thousand people that reported difficult psychedelic experiences. No? So somehow that gave me a, a really interesting and privileged access to this kind of experiences. Um, and then I started somehow recording or reviewing the sessions that I had done with these people, trying to understand if there were some patterns, some experiences that were more common than others. Mm. And therefore, I started to systematize a little bit what I was what I was seeing. You, know, you said at the beginning that the book is, is readable and, and easy to kind of, of go through. So that was actually my intention, not to explain the things that I was seeing in a language that could be understood by everybody, uh, lay people, but also therapists. Yeah. Uh, and then as I was giving talks and lectures about this, people were asking me, where can we learn more about this? Is, uh, have you written this talk or the content of this talk somewhere? Yeah. And I said, no, I have not, but maybe that would be a good idea. No? So yeah. the years that became uh, an increasingly present idea. And at some point I decided to, to do that. No? I took some months off from my work and I started, I, I went to travel and I focused on, on planning to write, the, write this book. And then through reading uh, papers and spiritual texts and scientific texts, I realized that many of the findings that I thought that were <laughs> mine, that I was the first person <laughs> that was thinking or writing about that, that was actually not the case. You know, that a lot of people had uh, gone through similar findings, maybe with different words, but, but um, they were similar. So then the book changed. No? The idea of the book changed from being something that was just coming from me and my observations to try to do some sort of synthesis of uh, the, the perspective on different people that have had an integration. No? So then I went through all the papers that I could read from the early 50s until now, 
uh, that talked about psychedelics and I was focusing particularly on the aspect of integration and I also went through spiritual texts to see if I could find some correlation between uh, spiritual experiences and psychedelic experiences and, and what to do with those experiences. So then the book became something wider mm. and it took a little bit longer to, to be written because I had to go through a lot of uh, literature and and that's something that I did not think uh, when I was writing, but some people have told me that one of the uses of, of the book is that there's so many references that somehow it's a place where people can go to, to look farther. No? It's like, okay, uh, that's, uh, there's this, this link that points to someone else's writings and that opens uh, a way to access knowledge that was there in the past, but maybe it had been buried uh, through the years. No? So that's also been... Um, like, um, I don't know how you say it in English, like a homage or a honoring the, the earlier psychedelic pioneers. No? So. And you're right. I mean, it's a wonderful reference text. I mean, mine is underscored in many, many places. One of the things I think is really interesting or that, that piques my attention a lot when we talk about any kind of more animistic, psychedelic, plant-based work is that there are many people for thousands of years who've been holding this knowledge and passing it on. And in recent years, you know, many psychotherapists and others who've been taking great risks to be able to provide people with these very meaningful experiences. And so one of the questions is, who is the gatekeeper to this knowledge? Who serves as the person who controls where and how people access this stuff? And so one of the things that you mentioned in the introduction was this, and I'm going to read this out. Knowledge of hallucinogenic technology is known in depth only by the shaman, and the shaman is legitimized by their community, not by a title or an academy. Psychiatry and clinical psychology, which have traditionally dealt with pathologizing any type of altered state of consciousness and whose medicines and techniques consist precisely in eradicating them, cannot be the disciplines responsible for guiding psychedelic journeys. They become necessary, however, when things become difficult. I love that just because it's kind of just a sober perspective on, on ways in which we can draw upon different disciplines and honour them in order to end up with the best results. What was it that kind of alerted you to that? Because I've met a lot of people who just are quite happy to continue with taking and extracting various substances without giving thought to the context from which they've been taken, cultural and you know medicinal context in which they've been taken. Well, the work that I've been doing at uh, the ICERS Foundation, it's always been very linked to the indigenous uh, use of psychoactive plants. Yeah? So... Therefore, we've been very much in touch with these traditions, and one of the uh, aspects that we that we've also always taken into consideration is the use of these substances in the original context in which they developed, no? and how we can see that there's many different uses of the same plants, but there th there are uses that are that are traditional that are part of uh, other cultures and other communities. No? And we cannot pretend to have all the all the answers. No? Now the Western mm. mind comes and analyzes ayahuasca and finds the alkaloids and this and this and that. And then we think that we know more than the people that have been using them for a long time. No? Which it's not to say that, that we don't know. I mean, we, we, we do have our own tradition. We have our psychiatric and psychological tradition and that's uh, perfectly valid and, and that's good. No? But we cannot uh, pretend that that's the only way to approach uh, psychedelic experiences. The same way that we cannot uh, pretend that they can only be approached from a shamanic perspective. 
You know, so there's we, we need to somehow redefine and expand our understanding of how these experiences work. And then I think it comes a, a, an important um, act of responsibility, no, of knowing what kind of provider, what kind of professional uh, you are, because sometimes we find in our uh, modern Western society how we confuse these roles and people that have had experiences in shamanic contexts they feel drawn to become shamans. Yeah, Some of them, they follow like the thorough training that that requires, but some of them just take certain elements from the shamanic practice and present them in a way as if that was traditional or they were someone that comes from that tradition, you know, which I think that that's a cultural appropriation on, on one hand, but it's also a disrespect for the tradition and a disrespect for the people that you're working with no? because you're pretending to be something that you're not. Um, so I think that that's something to be to be thought about. No? I think there's also a shared responsibility with the indigenous peoples that use uh, psychedelic substances. And we need to know that what we do and our visits there is shifting also the way that they practice their medicine. No? Um, ayahuasca tourism has become uh, an increasingly important business you know so now it's something that it's profitable for people in the amazon to become shamans mm. and also to practice in the way that uh, westerners want so before shamanism was practiced maybe in a slower pace people would not drink ayahuasca five times over the course of 10 days you know? that would be not the traditional way of practicing that but now we do that why because westerners have two weeks of holidays and they can go there to peru for two weeks so they want to do the maximum uh, that they can in those 10 days. So then people there, they adapt to that. They also adapt the ingredients of the ayahuasca, for example. No? There's plenty of videos saying how uh, we Westerners, we want to have visions. Therefore, they add more uh, DMT-containing plants so there will be more visions in, in the experience. So we do have a direct impact in those cultures. Yeah, There's nothing good, nothing bad about that, but just the way that it is. But we need to be aware of that. And I think that when when approaching the use of psychedelics and how it's going to be in the future, we need to be honest of who are you and what you do. You know, if you want to practice in a shamanic context, nothing wrong with that, but go there and learn in the way that they tell you that you need to learn because that's their system. So if you want to practice within that system, learn that system. If you want to be a Western uh, psychedelic psychologist, okay, then you will need to learn our ways. No? You will need to go through university, go to four years of school, then you'll need to whatever. No? There's a certain uh, procedure to become uh, a professional in this world. And so I think that that's a shared responsibility to act within your field of, of competence no? and to really know what you can do and do what you can do, not more, not less. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you mentioned there that, um, you know, that people going from Western countries to experience ayahuasca visions. They're going principally for the visions, or at least one would imagine something like, you know, it's the, the sense of the fireworks. It's like the Hollywood effect. If I can see it and it's dazzling, then something's working. But one of the things that I found very interesting in your book is how you define two schools broadly of psychedelic use in therapy. So the psycholytic approach and the psychedelic approach. And I hadn't really much understood about the former, about the psycholytic. Can you explain the difference between these two schools and how it works? Hmm. Yeah, as with everything that we define, the definitions are meant to understand different concepts, but that doesn't mean that the, then the actual practice is so different. No? So, but it's helpful to understand 
the where, where that comes from. So the psychedelic school was uh, mostly what originated in the U.S. It also has the origins in the native traditions. They saw that the Native American church, uh, which is a, an indigenous church that uses peyote in their ceremonies, some of their members, they had uh, problems with alcohol, and then through the use of peyote, they would somehow uh, become sober. Yeah. So then the idea was, can we induce with psychedelics uh, a powerful experience that will make the person stop drinking or radically change their personality or, or, or their view? And in order to do that, what this team of Amphrey Hosman and Abraham Hoffer developed was doing high doses of LSD and few times, from one to three times. Yeah? So the idea is through having a transcendental, mystical experience, uh, people can reshape their core values and then rebuild a personality based on more uh, healthy ways of seeing the world and therefore maybe stop drinking. Mm. It's funny because the, the original idea that they had was to really induce a difficult experience, to induce something similar to delirium tremens. You know that alcoholics sometimes when they stop drinking, all of a sudden they go through this delirium tremens and the experience is so shaking that some of them decide that they don't want to drink again because that's the, the worst that one can experience. So the original idea was, can we induce a delirium tremens that would be safer than the delirium mm. tremens that people experience with alcohol? Uh, so let's try to do it with LSD. Yeah, that's what happened. But they realized that people were actually, some of them were having uh, mystical and good experiences. And those that <laughs> had that seemed to benefit more from this therapy than those that had uh, difficult experiences. Yeah. So the psychedelic school tries to induce an experience that transcends the, the ego, transcends the personality, you know, that somehow we can connect with these uh, transcendental domains, have a mystical or spiritual experience. And the, the psycholytic school, which was uh, more prominent in Europe, what thinks is that, okay, we can use psychedelics to somehow progressively peel the onion. Yeah, we can go through different layers of uh, our personality, understanding different things and go deeper and deeper and deeper until we can uh, get rid of the external layers and find our essence. Yeah, so... In the psycholytic domain, they don't aim for super high doses. They remain within the uh, within the boundaries of the of the ego or the personality. Yeah? We don't want to completely transcend that. We want to work with our personality. You know? If it's a much more psychoanalytical approach, more therapeutic, if you want, in the sense that you're doing this progressive psychotherapy, and maybe you will end up taking psychedelics um, a long time, no? because it's like layers and layers and layers. Through this, that what we see that people do nowadays, it's uh, something different. No? People take sometimes high doses, but they don't take it just one or two or three times. That's something that they do on an ongoing uh, basis. No? So that's why I say that there's different uh, approaches no? or different uh, paradigms, but then the practice that we're seeing nowadays is, is a little bit uh, different. What happens in the clinical trials? Well, somehow a combination of, of both. No, there's uh, the, the trials that are now focused on depression, that they use psilocybin, they would have a more psychedelic approach, so to speak, because it's just one experience, and we're trying that with one experience, the depression will... Um, be uh, changed. No? People will not be depressed anymore. So it's a more psychedelic approach. What happens with MDMA? 
for PTSD. That's maybe a little bit more psycholithic, if you want. No, there's uh, three experiences over the course of several months with some integration sessions in between, and somehow what we're expecting is that we will go through the traumatic event, we will rewrite that traumatic event, and that will not affect us anymore. No? So it has a more therapeutic, uh, psychoanalytic approach. So we can we can see that psychedelics can be understood in many different ways, and that's maybe one of the of the, the richness of psychedelics. You know, they have many different uses. One of them definitely is the therapeutic use um, in, in clinical practice, but there's many other uses. You no, know? We can talk about artistic uses of psychedelics, spiritual uses of psychedelics, recreational uses of psychedelics. You know? So psychedelics somehow transcend our uh, definitions, you know? and that's what makes them so rich and also so complex to work with and to regulate and to understand. Mm. It's interesting that there's so many different ways of approaching this. And I think one of the things that was very interesting to me was when you mentioned this part of the book where you talk about the use of LSD at fairly low doses and the way in which it induces a paradoxical effect where you have ego depression, but also ego enhancement, which is super intriguing to me and how this can lead to overall better functioning and flourishing of the individual. Can you explain what that means when you get the ego depression and ego enhancement and how it contributes to someone's flourishing? Hmm. That, one of the things that, that happens, um, and can, can you please check who said that? Because definitely that's, that's not me. Yeah? That's um, a quote from someone that you were reading. Yeah? But, but that's what we see in, in the therapeutic settings. We can go through a momentary decrease in our psychic defenses hmm. and therefore unconscious material comes up or traumatic material comes up. But as we become able and willing to, to deal with that and to process that, what we see after is the opposite, is that that unconscious material of those traumatic events, they don't affect us so much. No? And then, so then we are more able to deal with that. We can think about those events without feeling overwhelmed by them. That's very clear with MDMA, for example. With MDMA, both of these things would happen. No? There's a, a softening of the ego defenses, so we can go into the uh, traumatic memory. But there's also an increase or, or strengthening in the confidence that we feel. We feel safer. Mm -hmm. no? So we can open to that. We, we can become more vulnerable to those mem memories, but we can also become stronger to be able to, to go with them with confidence and without fear. No? So that's the paradox that sometimes these, these substances can, can have. And particularly MDMA is a very good example of this. Mm. It's fascinating. I think one of the things, one of the reasons why people won't touch psychedelics is precisely the fear that unconscious stuff could come up, that they are unprepared for or um, that they might be too threatened by. And so I wonder, what is it about the mystical experience that you think is so potent? You know, you mentioned earlier about the Good Friday experiment and how people were expecting that a difficult experience would be maybe more transformative. And yet research is finding that the mystical has a greater power or has a very useful power. What, what is it about that, do you think? Hmm. There's um, a lot of answers for that, and I can tell you how I see it from my perspective. No one, uh, probably researchers that have done work around mystical experiences can give you a, a more detailed answer. But I think that the, the basic of, of this is that mystical experiences somehow, uh, when they happen, we transcend our individuality. We connect with something that's larger than we are. No? So then we can see our problems in perspective. We can see things from a, from a different point of view. And it's almost as you would look at things with certain uh, distance. No? You can see your problems, but you can put them in a certain perspective that they don't seem maybe so important or that you can look them from a place 
that's like, all right, but this is just part of uh, a part of what's happening. No, but I'm not just that. I'm, I'm not only those problems, those suffering. I'm much more than that. You know? So then that gives some sort of reframing of who we are or, or what, what our problems are. No? This is like these memes that we see on the, on the internet, no? in which you see this picture or, or painting of space, <laughs> uh, an arrow pointing to a tiny place and like, this is earth. All your worries, all your problems, all your concerns, no? And then somehow you connect with something larger and it's like, all right, there's, there's much more, no? So when we can go beyond ourselves, when we can become a little bit less identified with our own suffering, with our own ego, usually life becomes a little bit easier to deal with, no? I've seen that plenty of times, you know, that people that have sometimes not mystical experiences, no, but experiences of some sort of ego softening or ego death, there's a certain identification with we, no, after the experience, like, okay, here, here we are, no, it's not just, it's not me who is here, but we are all in this together. I'm part of something larger. And that gives a, a, a much easier way to, to hold and to, to deal with things. No, when you feel that you're part of a community, if you feel that you're part of, I don't know, a family, a community, a tribe, a species, um, some sort of a creation no? so that that gives a sense of not being alone and that can be really really helpful another thing that i wanted to ask you about which was really interesting from the perspective of people who are therapists is the role that therapists take in what could be one of the most significant and transformative experiences in a person's life and given that we all bring our own perspectives and ideas and baggage to the table how can therapists show up for their clients wholeheartedly but also without unduly influencing or projecting their meaning onto the sitter, onto the patient? Hmm. That's a, a good question, and it's difficult to answer. No, and it, it comes to what does it take to become a psychedelic therapist? Hmm. No, what, what does a psychedelic therapist need to learn in order to accompany people in a, in a safe way? Um, this is a debate that it's not going to be really solved. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, many different approaches. Uh, and there's many different schools. No? So if you learn to become a shamanic practitioner, you're going to learn how to orchestrate ceremonies in a certain way. No? And your role, for example, there is going to be much more active. You're going to be maybe singing, doing some sort of uh, blowing tobacco, um, doing some energetic work in the space, or who knows. No? You will be working with different plants. Maybe you will be calling certain spiritualized, no? So that's one way of, of intervening in such experiences. If we go to more Western approaches, it is understood that what we need to do during those experiences is not to intervene, is not to do, rather to be there, no? That we're supporting the person with uh, our presence, we're supporting with making the person feel comfortable and confident and safe, mm. and just allowing the person to go through their own experience. So many times, the learning to become a psychedelic therapist is a lot of uh, unlearning, yeah, learning not to do. I had a teacher, uh, blessed with his memory, that used to say that we need to learn to do, doing, not doing. <laughs> it's doing, not doing. Most of the times you need to do nothing and that might be difficult and challenging for some therapists, you know, that we might want to be the healers. We might want to be the ones that have the answer, the ones that induce the change, the ones that heal. You know, it's, that's one of the, the challenges for psychedelic therapists. And unfortunately, that's something that happens many times in uh, neo-shamanic circles or underground 
therapies that the therapies can end up having a lot of, uh, how could we say, I don't know, like uh, ego inflation or a lot of power issues happening mm -hmm. there, no? Because you're giving substances to people, they are having amazing experiences and they will put all the these uh, projections on you, you know, oh my God, you're so good. I had such a good experience because of you. Uh, you're such a good healer, such a professional, such a whatever, no? And, mm -hmm. and then if you take that on, it's like, yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no? you, you can get a little bit inflated. Yeah. No? And that's definitely one of the dangers of psychedelics, that there's a lot of power involved in giving substances to someone else no? because not because you're getting power, but because people will give it to you. So if you take it, then we can run into problems. So, uh, yeah, how to become a psychedelic therapist is a, an endless topic. And actually, I, I get uh, requests of like, how can you tell me what training should I do? Uh, what's the best training? What should I do if I want to become a psychedelic therapist? No. Um, there are schools that they say, okay, you have to go through a lot of psychedelic experiences in a supervised setting. There are schools that they think that you don't need to, to do that, you know. So, yeah, that's a, a whole debate <laughs> that it's out there. And also the training of psychedelic therapists has become a business, no? If you, if you Google uh, psychedelic training, there's hundreds, not hundreds, but thousands of them. And many different in nature, but most of them quite expensive. Yeah. No? So, so it's, a, it's a topic that it's a very appealing to people, but we don't really have a, an answer to, to that because we don't know if these trainings that are appearing now are going to be, um, I don't know, uh, they, they're going to give you any sort of legal license to practice. No, that's something that we don't know what's going to happen when in three, four, five years time, psychedelics are legal. Who is going to have the, uh, as you were saying before, no? who's going to be the gatekeeper mm. to those experiences? What kind of training is going to be the training that's going to allow to allow you to practice? No, that's, we will see what will happen, but uh, I anticipate certain uh, conflicts uh, within the community, no? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And I think, you know, you, you touched on ego inflation and, and one of the very, and it is quite troubling, consequences that people can encounter once they've been through these sorts of experiences obviously there's ego inflation there's also the spiritual narcissism which i encounter so much in people that i meet in these tribes and the classic spiritual bypass and false spirituality that people will engage in certain practices as a means of avoiding painful aspects of their lives why do you think this is happening so much is it just something that's somewhat unavoidable in terms of if you get a certain number of people doing it this is going to happen because it's just one of the potential side effects so that's the first question why does it happen so much and then also what can we do when this arises hmm. yeah it's um, a really really good question yeah. and not an easy <laughs> one to to answer no but i'd no. like to to give it some some time to answer this uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, this friend of mine, Adam Aronovich, who happens to be the translator of the of the book, he translated the book. He has this wonderful Instagram page that's called Healing from Healing. <laughs> that they explore in a funny way all these uh, spiritual narcissism uh, tendencies you know, that we're seeing nowadays. Okay, Th that's a, a real phenomenon, no? And I think that. Uh, spiritual bypass and spiritual narcissism and, and ego inflation, these are risks of any spiritual path or any therapeutic path. With psychedelics, I would say that it becomes magnified. Yeah, we need to be extra extra aware of that. You were asking why does it happen so much? I, I would say that it's because psychedelics have found their way into the mainstream and our way of, 
of living now has a lot to do with with that. No, there's a lot of um, need to to present a shiny, beautiful aspect of ourselves. No, if you mm. look how uh, social media works, that's that's what that's what's selling nowadays. No, like beautiful people, fit people, uh, fantastic <laughs> people that are I don't know living very balanced lives, balanced. Uh, um, diet, exercise, living in wonderful places—you know, like that's what uh, people want to see, you know, and, and that's what we are presenting to the to the public. So then, it's normal that when people approach psychedelics, that is going to be present as well. You know? That's uh, like the, the 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 perfect storm. <laughs> you know, you add psychedelics into this into this equation, and it becomes like multiplied by a hundred times. Because psychedelics can give us really uh, heart-opening and enlightening experiences. No? So it's normal that uh, at a certain point we feel inflated. No, We feel that, oh my God, I've been... And inflated is a Jungian term. No? It's like I've been inflated, like a lot of unconscious material, a lot of collective and transpersonal material has gotten in, in me. No, uh, that, That's just been part of my, my ego and I'm somehow... Um, identifying with that, no, which that's a mistake. If you think that that you're special because you've uh, experienced that that uh, transpersonal uh, influx, no, for you that's uh, nothing good at all. No, it's like you're losing yourself into the transpersonal. You're allowing this uh, material from the collective unconscious to to uh, take you, take you over. No, so that's not actually a path to enlightenment. It's uh, actually a path to destruction. But um, we also need to be compassionate with with that. No, it's easy to to somehow uh, attack or or see spiritual narcissism on other people. It's not so easy to see it on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that it's uh, something that we all go through. And everybody that goes through a therapeutic process or a psychedelic uh, process, we will have some of that. Everybody. So we cannot really escape that. It's part of the it's part of the journey. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does have a function. You know, sometimes we are in such depressed states, we are suffering so much, all we need is to experience life from a more inflated place. So I can see how that can have a function. And for a certain period of time, when you've been for many years in misery and all of a sudden you start having psychedelic experiences and you perceive yourself as special, as worthy, as unique, as whatever, that might have a, a therapeutic outcome, no? If you become fixated on that, that's another stone in the yeah. in your personal path, no. But I do think that there's a there's room for certain inflation at certain uh, moments of our spiritual life. That's something different. If the leader or the therapist is uh, very much fixated on that role, no, that can create problems uh, with with the clients or with the community or the people that they are working with. But yeah, I think that the best way is always to to be part of certain tradition, to have people that know more than you, people that know less than you. And you know that you know that you're just a, a step in this chain, no? that you're just a, a part of the of the ladder. And there will be always to tell you, hey, Mark, you know, I think that you should look at this and this and this. No? And that's a good thing of having uh, like close teachers, no? that they will point things uh, that are not working in a loving way or they will point you to your blind spots because we, we all have them. No? So... So, yeah, but I, I hear, you know, that it's um, something that's happening. You go on, on Instagram and you find hundreds of accounts, thousands of accounts uh, preaching the the enlightenment that they got from psychedelic experiences and how special they are. No? We all need to be careful about that. I think also it's the um, 
having teachers or a community of teachers around you who can lovingly point out when you're at risk of something or when you could be supported in a different way or a blind spot we might have. So I think that's that's also the real, one of the biggest challenges, at least I've encountered in in more secular contexts, is finding teachers who have a sense of humour about, you know, their own uh, their own path, which is usually to me a good indicator of a healthy individual. So I think there's a there's a question there around finding elders who are experienced and wise and also have humility and hold themselves lightly. And then finding that the healthiest teachers are not necessarily displaying themselves on social channels, which is one of the main mm. sources that we turn to. Yeah, the way that we um, evaluate a teacher, no, or consider if a teacher is good or not, um, we can also think about that, no? Is it because they have, I don't know, how many followers on the internet or they appear on certain and certain media or whatever, no? Sometimes I think that we have this tendency of really looking for the best teacher, the more enlightened teacher, no? And, but I think that not all the time we need such a... We, we don't need to learn with the Dalai Lama, really. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that, that I need to learn from the Dalai Lama. There's so much distant from me to him, no, that that's like, why do you want such a good teacher? I mean, I'm learning other stuff, no, I'm at a different stage you know, of, of learning. So I've been uh, incredibly privileged in my life to find very humble people, but they were very good in what they did. No, this is uh, like in the old times when there were the guilds of uh, crafts, no, if you wanted to become, I don't know, a carpenter or a mason or whatever, no, you would learn from someone that knows more in this, in this particular uh, craft. So I've been lucky enough to to experience that and to know five, seven people that uh, I've worked very close by, and they've had this this role of mentors and teachers, no, and, and they pointed in a loving way, but also a ruthless way, what was not working for me and what I needed to to change, you know, and that's been invaluable. So I think that always trying to find someone that you can be uh, close by, you know, that you can learn not just by admiring him on stage but also by developing a relationship with this person. That's a, a really good way of, of learning the, the subtle aspects of, of any work. No? And I think that with uh, therapy and with psychedelic therapy, that's um, a really beautiful thing to learn. No? You can learn many things on books, you can learn things on online trainings, but there's something different of working with someone that you respect, someone that you admire, someone that you think that does a good job, and you're seeing him or her do that. You know, and you you work with this person. This is like I don't know, like surgeons learn. No, when you want to become a surgeon, you don't learn with the most famous surgeon of the world. No, you learn with with a with a good surgeon that has a lot of experience, and you work with this person. No, it's like okay, and you do certain things up to here. No, and then and then the surgeon continues. Next day you would do another step. No, and that's the way that you learn. To you learn by doing the work with someone that knows how to do the work. No, and I think that that's incredibly beautiful. So I I hope that that more and more people could get this kind of experience, you know, to have uh, mentors and teachers that, that are there to support uh, our growth. You know? So, yeah. And so we're kind of coming towards the end of our conversation, but before I go into the last few questions, I'd like to get your take on what you think are the most promising aspects of and the risk factors in the future of psychedelic therapy. I think that we're witnessing um, an amazing uh, age. Yeah, I don't think that 10 years ago, anybody would bet that what's happening now would happen. No, like uh, psychedelics being decriminalized in several states in the UN's, MDMA and psilocybin being uh, becoming soon uh, prescription medications, ketamine being used daily in around the world clinics, 
um, ayahuasca being something that has found its way to the Western world. I mean, we are witnessing something that really is unbelievable. No? And I think that that opens uh, many new paths for, for psychiatry, for psychology, and for understanding uh, therapy no? and, and, and psychotherapy. But not only that, I think that psychedelics can bring us back. And when I say us, I mean uh, the Western, Western civilization can bring us back in a way to access meaningful moments. I think that we've, we've lost touch with uh, the, the importance of experiencing and sharing meaningful time together. Yeah, we don't have so many rituals that are meaningful to us. Mm. Religion is not something that uh, we value so much anymore. It doesn't add meaning to most people, for most people. Uh, and and we, we're missing that. We're lacking those contexts in which we share meaningful experiences with people that are like-minded or people that are from, from our time or generation. No? And I think that that is something that psychedelics can bring back to us. And that can be extremely helpful from a human perspective, I would say. No? That, that uh, hopefully can give us a little bit more that sensation of, I am not alone, I'm not isolated, I'm part of a group, I'm part of a community, I'm part of a species, you know, and I have a shared responsibility with, with everybody else. No, I'm no different than, than the rest, but I do have a special place here and I, and I have to, to play my part. No? So I think that that's how that will happen. I don't know. No? That's why I would like to see an access to psychedelics that it's not only through the medical model, that mm. there will be ways in which we can create these rituals that are not only um, psychiatric approaches. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one of the hopes that I have. I also see some risks. Uh, one of the risks is we, we talked before, no? who's going to be able to access these treatments because of uh, regulation, because of money, you know, so the, the accessibility to that and who's going to be the gatekeeper to these uh, treatments and these experiences. I think that that's something that's likely to become a, an issue in the next years. And I also see a risk related to what we were talking, you know, to how the Western uh, mind, the Western society somehow approaches this, this phenomenon. Yeah, we, we want to have a lot of visions. We want to make things fast. We want to take psychedelics twice and get rid of our depression. <laughs> Somehow we understand these experiences as single events. No, It's like a magic bullet. I will take this and this will solve my problems. I will take this and I will become enlightened. And I don't think that's what psychedelics teaches. They teach us more that life is a, a continuous process. Mm -hmm. No, that it's, we don't live in single events. We live in a process. And, and therapy and psychedelic experiences need to be part of an ongoing process, a process that takes into account the preparation, the integration, but also the society that we live in, the kind of lifestyle that we have, you know. So, so if we place all the, the focus on the experience itself, I think that we are missing a big point. You know? and, and I, I see this happening, you know, people focusing on how many times have you drink ayahuasca or what happened in that psychedelic experience or therapeutic uh, treatment with psychedelics being very much focused on the day of the experience and everything else becoming meaningless. You no, know, I think that that's a way of, of stripping uh, psychedelics from the depth and the the potential healing they they can bring to us, no? Because we start seeing them as a magic bullet, a pill that we swallow one day and we become passive passive uh, agents yeah. uh, on that, no? Okay, I take the pill and I wait for things to happen, and that's what that's not what we learn from psychedelics. We learn self empowerment, we learn responsibility, we learn agency, and we learn that in the end we are the ones that heal ourselves, that take the decisions, and that have to 
be accountable for what we do. No? So I hope that that, that uh, vision of the process will find its way into this uh, mainstream psychedelic practice. No? Mm, wonderful. And so then the one that I'd like to close with is how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days when things are challenging? Wow, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, the way that I find hope, and I have to say that it's becoming increasingly difficult sometimes, you know, in, with all these things that are happening, the all the crises that we're going through, and when you look at what happens in the world, oh my God, there's many reasons to be worried, mm. you know, because of uh, the climate change, because of wars, of our global economy, also this uncertainty that we were talking before, and I see especially in, in young people, how now nothing is certain and they really don't know where they're going and, and it's difficult to grow up these days. There's no clear future or, or where this world is going. There's a sense of, of uh, things being meaningless. No? Why should I study? Why should I work? Why should I, you know, I mean, it's like, what's the reward of doing that? No? So there's many reasons not to have hope, but um, I like to, I don't know, I have certain hope in, in uh, mankind, you know, in, in, in humanity, especially when I go down to the, to the micro level, you know, if you look at how families have uh, lived through ages, you know, and how small tribes, small communities, that um, there's always been acts of love. There's always been the concern of providing to our children a better world than the one we have. And I think that that's something that every generation has worried about. We, we've always worried about having certain continuity, you know, of, okay, we come from a certain place and we're going to to another place, you know, and we are here doing our part at this moment. So to me, it, it, I, I find hope in, in looking back in and looking back at this miracle of we made it so far, you know, which, mm. which yeah, and and how how have we done it? I don't know, through many, many challenges, no, but but we are here. So that gives me hope that we will do that as well, no? And probably that what has made us um, get here so far is not, uh, well, what has uh, kept us here is probably some deeper values like uh, family, love, compassion, um, curiosity, mm. no? And so I think that, that that will be there. We, yeah, I think that there are reasons for hope because there have been reasons for, for hope, you know, so we're not, not different from our ancestors. So, mm. yeah. I love that. Mark, thank you so much. If people want to learn more about your work and your brilliant book, where can they find you? So people can find me on social media, in Instagram, if they Google my name, Mark Ashala, I'm there. Also on Facebook. Um, they can visit my website, markashala.com. And the book can be found in uh, Spanish and English. In Spanish, you can find it in Editorial Elefteria, and in English can be found at Synergetic Press, yeah? I'm not someone that's super active in uh, <laughs> social media, so don't expect a very shiny kind of Instagram page if you <laughs> drop by. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to read the book. I really appreciate that. and and for inviting me to, to your show. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai.
If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalinahyde.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalina High. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.